Hi there, Vincasters. Before the new episode of the podcast begins, I'd just like to remind you that uh, the show relies on the support of its listeners. Uh, so if you do enjoy the podcast, if you do enjoy this episode or any other episode, please do go to the podcast page on iTunes and leave a five-star rating and a review to let me know um, why you like listening to the podcast or which guest you might have enjoyed hearing about. Uh, it really does help me uh, by providing me some feedback, but also it helps the podcast get out to more potential listeners and uh, helps it climb up the charts. So uh, thank you very much, obviously, for listening to this and any other episode of the podcast uh, and for your ongoing support. And uh, I hope you enjoy this week's episode. On episode 121 of the Vincast, I chat with Elaine Chukan-Brown, otherwise known as Hawk Waka Waka, blogger, writer, and inventor of the Illustrated Tasting Note. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of The Vincast. My name is James Scarsbrook, otherwise known as The Intrepid Wino, and it is awesome to be able to share a new episode of the podcast with you, someone I've wanted to have on the show for a while. Um, I actually met her by chance uh, a few years ago whilst I was traveling in Europe, uh, and although she is a big supporter of Australian wine and uh, regularly comes out to Australia, uh, I've never had the opportunity to catch up with her in person, uh, and uh, I was able to get on uh, Skype with her. Uh, she's based in New Zealand at the moment, uh, so we had a really good chat. Uh, if you listen carefully, you can actually hear my uh, my almost six-month-old son, Oliver, in the background um, having a bit of a whinge as uh, we settle him in for the, for the night, but um, I do hope you enjoy the chat I have with Elaine. Please stick around until the end to find out how you can get in touch with uh, either of us to let us know that you did enjoy it. But uh, until then, I'll see you on the other side. Elaine, thank you for joining me via Skype from uh, New Zealand, in fact, uh, and welcome on the Vincast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, Elaine, you and I met um, somewhat briefly back in 2012 when we both happened to be enjoying a, a, an incredible lunch prepared by... Um, uh, it's Lydia Bastianic. Yes. Uh, in Friuli. Um, yes, and I still tell people about that lunch. Actually, <laughs> it was uh, it was pretty amazing. I actually wasn't aware of who she was until um, my host the previous day mentioned. You know, she's kind of a big deal in the states as far as Italian cooking, and I was like, oh, okay. Wow. Uh, and then, of course, I met uh, you and a lot of other lovely, um, mostly US-based bloggers and writers. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I've wanted to have you on the show for, for quite a while now. Um, Thank you. I start every episode of the podcast by asking my guest uh, if they can remember, was it a particular experience in your life that made you think about wine in a different way that possibly set you on that path or was it a, a very um, slow uh, build and before you knew it, you were like obsessed with wine? Well, it's kind of both. Um, I didn't grow up with wine really. Once a month, my family would go out to eat at Hong Kong Chinese restaurant on Spinard Road in Anchorage, Alaska. And my mom would order a glass of plum wine. And that was the extent of my contact with wine growing up. 
plum then, plum wine did you say plum yeah plum wine yeah like japanese uh, umeshu or just wine made was, from plums i don't even know like okay they're just yeah it's made of made from plums wow um but it was such just this wine was not in any way really available in alaska at the time and so even the plum wine it was just there was no sense of understanding it more than that it was plum wine it was you know it was just whatever they happened to have there and my mom liked it she just got it once a month with this meal and she'll still actually occasionally if she's out for japanese food she'll still (laughs) occasionally order a glass of plum wine but growing up that was the extent of my contact with wine And then in my early 20s, I did a favor for my sister. And to thank me, she took me out for dinner. And she had started to get curious about wine. So wanted to order a nice bottle and got a Premier Cru Burgundy. That's the extent of what I know. I didn't, you know, like I said, I didn't know anything about wine. So I didn't know enough to pay attention beyond that. And it was the first time I smelled, I like, you know, it's a classic experience. I put my nose in the glass and was just like, oh my God, I had no idea. And, and then, you know, it carried into the palate and I, it just blew my mind. I had no idea, but that wine could be like that. And I suddenly got it. You know, I understood why people were, were fanatic about wine. And after that, any time I had a glass of wine, I could at least get a glimpse of that moment. Um, it was a little while before I found another wine that was so transfixing for me, but I understood now what people saw. And so I could glimpse that in other wines. And so from there, it was a slow build. Wow. Okay. So was most of your um, upbringing in Alaska? Yes. uh, Born and raised. The rest of my family is still there actually. Um, So I lived there full time, you know, through 18 out of high school. And then, um, after I still went back in the summers and into well into my twenties because I grew up commercial fishing for salmon. So we lived a migrating life where a quarter of the year we were on the Western coast commercial fishing for salmon in the largest wild salmon run in the world. It's Bristol Bay. And then my parents wanted us to go to a mainstream school. So we wintered in Anchorage. So I was used to that migration anyway. And then I left Alaska after high school, but it was still going back for the fishing season for quite a few years after. Right. Okay. What, what, what was it that took you out of Alaska? Um, and, and where did you end up? Oh my, I've, I've kind of wandered all over, but it was just sort of understood that I would go somewhere for university. And so initially that was just what I did. I, um, I, you know, I left for university. I initially, I went to Boston for a year and then, um, a friend of mine, died from an unexpected accident in that first year. And it really, that was just kind of shocking, you know, to go through at that age and to be so, so removed Boston. I really liked Boston, but then it was so very different. Um, and so removed from people I knew well that going through that kind of, um, stark experience alone really shifted my perspective, perspective on what I wanted. So I moved to Seattle because it was a city I knew quite well and lived there for a couple of years and then ended up in California, mainly Santa Cruz for six years and just kept kind of wandering from there. I, um, I've always been really quite a curious person and Alaska was a fantastic place to grow up, but it also 
was the sort of place that I was very aware the really interesting things I heard about happening in science and in the arts and in the news and in cultural developments were always somewhere else. <laughs> and so pretty early on, I, I got the bug to go find those other places. And I've just kind of been doing that since I left high school. So was there a real feeling of isolation um, in Alaska and kind of feeling like the rest of the world, there was so much going on and, and you were a little bit cut off from it? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think one has to have that feeling there, but I, like I said, I was just so curious that I had this real itch to go find those places. Um, yeah, and I just sort of pretty early on just understood that I would be wandering and investigating, exploring things, you know, for most of my life, and I have. That's mostly what I've done. I still, you know, today I travel you know, pretty much all the time. And, um, you know, and like I said, I've lived in lots of different places as an adult too. So in those formative, um, young adult, uh, days, what, what were you studying and what, what were you working on? Um, yeah, so I, I had always had a kind of drive towards writing. I think that it suits the curiosity piece quite well. Um, but I also, kind of always had this really introspective tendency and I think writing gave me a way to make sense of that. Like I, you know, if I'd been reflecting on things, I could kind of write it out for myself and um, get clearer. And so right out of high school, I got started in just studying English literature um, and then got really also quite curious about art history. But then at some point I realized I was kind of just taking whatever classes I found interesting and, and that that was a really expensive way to go to school and didn't really aim towards a degree because it meant I wasn't fulfilling requirements. I was always trying to like jump into the advanced course to study some odd, you know, unusual thing. And, um, so after a few years of doing that, I decided to take a break from going to for a formal education and because and, I figured if I was just curious, then I could study anything I wanted on my own and that would be a lot more affordable. So I took this huge risk and left university without a clear plan and except to try things out and sort of study whatever I could get my hands on that was reasonable and um, studied all kinds of stuff. I, I did uh, clinical level training in massage therapy, um, clinical level training in hypnosis, um, learned how to do metal work, like for jewelry, learned how to actually carve, um, gems and, and rocks. Um, so worked as a lapidurist for a while. I, um, studied even, you know, I was really curious about different types of religious, um, tradition. And so, you know, kind of found books and studied like Eastern traditions on my own. And then through that found out about things like the chakra system. And I was like, huh, what is that? You know, what does that work? So I started studying different ways people imagine what it is to be a person. Um, got, was really into, had always been really into poetry. So I did a lot of reading of things like that. And I would kind of you know, this is back before there was a really robust internet. It was, you know, it was certainly existed, but not to the extent it does now. 
So I would take like correspondence courses and in different kinds of things as well. Um, so yeah, I just did all kinds of stuff. Got, worked as a camel trainer, trainer for four years, learned how to incubate tortoise eggs and uh, how to hand train birds and just was like really just trying all kinds of stuff. So it sounds like you've, um, yeah, just something <laughs> something presented itself and you got really interested in and kind of threw yourself into it and wanted to learn everything about it. Yeah, I would take, yeah, I mean, that's the thing I've, um, I mean, I've kind of tried a lot of things, but I've sort of really, um, whenever I get into something, I really do immerse in it and, and take it quite seriously in that sense, you know? So there's a lot of that early stuff too. It sounds like all kinds of different things, but there was sort of a thread through there of, um, trying to make sense of the world at large, the different ways people kind of interpreted how, you know, what it was to be themselves and how they wanted to interact with the world and how people make choices. I would spend a lot of time to, um, just getting people to tell me their life story, you know, and asking if I, if I found out they had an interesting job or had lived somewhere interesting, I'd get them to explain to me how, how it worked out that way. You know, cause I think going back to your question about isolation in Alaska with being someone that was so curious and knowing I wanted to see places besides just where I grew up, it was like I was also always trying to look for other models of how I might be able to do do things and live my life, like trying to make sense of how the rest of the world worked, because it seemed like the rest of the world was quite different than Alaska. I still actually believe that. I still, Alaska is a really unique place. And like I said, I honestly am so glad I grew up there, but it's um, it's quite an unusual place. And so it took, it took me a long time to sort out how, you know, how to do things elsewhere, how to communicate with people outside Alaska in ways they'd recognize and understand. And, you know, um, so there's always sort of a common thread of kind of making sense of the world that went through everything I was doing. As you interacted with people from different parts of the world, um, what did you find that their reference points were for Alaska? Oh, is this world of wonders to them, you know? Um, yeah, it's still, that's still true. People are still fascinated by the fact that I'm from there. And there's this really, it's interesting because it's such an iconic place in people's minds, really kind of anywhere in the world, anywhere I've gone, people have just been like, wow, Alaska immediately. But then there's not a lot of detail necessarily in that picture for them there is just it's this iconic place and they imagine it's cold and it's remote and they always want to go there someday and they believe it's beautiful and uh you know just things like that really unique and people want to see it so yeah i, I guess you know comparisons I, I kind of think of it like um something like a combination of New Zealand and the Galapagos. It's this amazing kind of unique and isolated ecosystem, both, you know, for nature and for, you know, civilization as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a sense that people have that there's something still preserved there, you know, that of course people live there and, you know, like, you know, life evolves, but at the same time, there's something kind of, 
there's a sort of, I just think so many people today are looking for something authentic. You know, that word comes up so often and there's a kind of wish to return to simpler lives and more honest lives and more down to earth. And Alaska absolutely is like, it's so raw there. It really is a kind of frontier still that there's just not much time for, for bullshit, you know? And so people from Alaska tend to be very down to earth, very straightforward, really direct. (laughs) That's part of what I mean about having to learn how to adjust my, the, my way of communication. There's, uh, a real, a, from a real serious lack of so. cynicism and, you know, I, I guess that, that kind of the frontier thing, you know, you can see how fascinated people are with it when you see how popular the, that show, what is that, Ice yeah. Road Truckers is? There's all kinds of shows now about Alaska, yeah. I actually, I, I make a point of not watching any of them. <laughs> so I, I can't tell you if they're true or not. I don't know. But, but yeah, there's a lot of shows like that now. Yeah. Uh, so early on, like, did you kind of, you clearly had a, an interest in, um, creative pursuits, you know, when you were talking about like, uh, making jewelry, mm-hmm. um, uh, did that kind of feed into your interest in, in wine in a way? Well, I think in an, in, yeah, there in an indirect sense, I mean, there was, yeah, art w- and doing things with my hands was always part of kind of anything like my interests. Um, you know, so like in high school, I took a lot of art classes and um, of all different sorts. And I really liked learning how to make things with my hands and do things with my hands. And of course, commercial fishing is all, you know, really it's physical labor, but a lot of work with your hands and in um so I just kind of had that way of being um, in the world and really I needed, I always needed that kind of outlet. But then, um, you know, and the, and the thing about the arts is you're always exploring different ways of understanding the world, interacting with the world and expressing that new insight. And so it's very much about that relationship of, how I understand myself, my senses and what my senses tell me because of how I interact with the world. And so I ended up going in a completely different direction though. I got, you know, once I I decided to go back to university, I then, I went all the way through and into doctoral work in philosophy and then became a philosophy professor. I was faculty at a university for a while. And that, that life is so different than what I'm describing. It's purely intellectual and, and, incredibly verbal. And I think, um, part of how I ended up in wine was like, I had gone so far into a verbal intellectual life that I needed a way to come back. And, um, when I decided to leave my academic career, I, um, had already, you know, that slow build we were talking about with wine had gotten, you know, quite a lot of force behind it. And I was trying to figure out a way to, kind of transition out of philosophy and become a more normal person again. Philosophers are weirdos, <laughs> you know. And uh, wine was this thing where I could still be really reflective and introspective and intellectual in a certain sense, but it was all it's all about the senses, you know. It's all about, oh my god, like how am I responding to this wine? How does it feel in my mouth? How does it 
taste? How does it change my perception of things? You know, not, you know, both in sense of, oh my God, I'm overwhelmed by the beauty of this wine. So now my perception of, of how, you know, how I feel is different because of the beauty. But then of course you also get intoxicated, you know, so, um, there's also that kind of, that kind of, um, change that happens. And so it's, it's funny, I can still really be a philosopher, but I can ground that way of approaching things in something that's purely, you know, that's so incredibly sensorial. You have, you know, you have to be grounded. You have to be in your body. You have, you know, you have to be confronted by a real thing in front of you. Um, so it's a kind of a way of coming back from, from how far into philosophy I'd gone. I think that's something that I really um, connected with with wine myself. That's what I like. Why I found a lot of interest in early on is, I guess you know, from a philosophy perspective, um, you know, you, like you, there is that kind of blend of you know being quite critical and and you know, critical thinking and breaking down the elements and looking at at the the raw data of a wine, for example, and talking about the. The, the technical information, but then there is that kind of really, um, uh, the, like the discussive, that kind of subjective element of it that, you know, there's no wrong answers and it's completely your perception and, you know, it can make you think about things in different ways. You know, some person might, you know, think in terms of, um, you know, pop culture or someone might think of, you know, it might remind them of art or something like that way. You know, it, it kind of, it really does sort of engage both the right and left side that, you know, it can, it, it has both intro and extroverted elements. It's, it, you know, that that's what I love. You know, it is. It can be such an equalizing thing. Wine, you know, it, mm-hmm. it's not like a lot of other beverages where, um, right. you know, it's pretty. It's a lot more black and white. The one thing I want to add to what you're saying, because I agree that it has those two sides that are. It's um, keeps it really dynamic and interesting. But I want to add one more layer to it, which is that at the same time, whatever it is you're saying about the about the wine or whatever your experience with it is, whatever your perception is, it's got to make, make contact with the actual wine that's right there. You know, there's a limit. There's this way in which we have all this flexibility with how we approach wine. And so I can, you know, I can really geek out. And, you know, that curiosity piece I was talking about, it's like, okay, awesome. I can study this as a scientist. I can study this as an artist. I can study this as a humanist. I can study this in relation to geography, to growing conditions, to chemistry, you know, and then as an aesthetist, so into relation to to beauty and and balance and form and all these things. But at the same time, there's also a way in which the wine itself places a demand on you, you know, that you, you can talk about it from all these different perspectives, but there still is an actual thing there, the actual wine that you have to be speaking in relation to, you know, so it's not just wild subjectivity with no grounding. There's a way in which it is a physical object. There is sensory reality there. There is te- actual technical reality there. Um, it, it is a completely tangible terrestrial thing. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and like you said, you know, it at the end of the day, it is, you know, something that is designed to just be enjoyed and consumed yeah. and, and it has that kind of, um, 
you know, the, the, the alcoholic element of it has that kind of effect on your body. And, uh, you know, the way that you enjoy it, like mostly is just drinking and having it with food and, you know, promoting conversation and, you know, lowering inhibitions and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But, and then, you know, we're, for someone like me traveling to wine events and tasting with winemakers, I all, I still need to stay relatively sober to be professional, you know? So it's like, I have to, I have to respect the wine in that sense too. And then, um, it's interesting though. I think there's a funny way in which we're afraid, even though we're kind of afraid to admit in the wine industry that wine makes us drunk, you know, yeah, it's a, yeah. there's a funny, um, taboo about kind of owning that. Bec- um, but then on the other side, people that don't have the kinds of lives we have assume it's just all a party all the time. And actually there's quite a lot of work that goes into being a wine professional, you know, just it, happens we get, get to enjoy our beverage too. I feel like wine is kind of like that, a member of the family who thinks that they're better than the rest of the family. And mm-hmm. they kind of say, Oh, you know, that uncle, like, you know, he's terrible and stuff like that. And he causes all the problems, but it's like, yeah, but you're still part of the family. You know, you right, are yeah. related. You can't, you can't completely plead innocence on that. You know, yeah, wine, yeah. wine is an alcoholic beverage and, and it does make people drunk and, you know, like, okay, maybe it's not as bad as other ones. And it's certainly, you know, there is that kind of elitist level of, of wine that, and, and, you know, generally it's more expensive as well. That probably puts a lot of people off that you might think, uh, you know, somewhat problematic in a, in a social, uh, societal perspective, but, um, but, you know, like I say, it's, it's still alcohol. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, one of the things too, that was important for me in moving from, philosophy into wine was like at the end of the day it's it is just wine you know like it's there's a there's a natural limit to how serious it's appropriate to be about it you know um and then on the other side it is also still people's livelihoods and that does mean it is incredibly important you know it's people's actual lives that are at stake and whether and how well it sells and you know if the wine worked out that year and if there was enough yield to make you know to make appropriate volume to sell the wine and things like that. So there's still this kind of, it's an interesting case for me because it's, you know, at the end of the day, it's just wine calmed down. And yet there really are real tangible things at stake that um, give room to think through, well, how are people living that life? You know, how does it work differently? Like here in New Zealand versus there in Australia, you know, things like that. So, what, what, how did you kind of um, take those first steps into a career that, um, you know, was connected with the wine industry? Really, um, well, I didn't realize it would become a career. I, um, like I said, I was, I eventually left um, commercial fishing and ended up um, becoming an academic. Um, you know, did doctoral work in philosophy and, and worked as a philosophy faculty in a university in the States. And then, after you know a good amount of time doing that, I realized it was time to leave academia. It's just a really quite a hard time to be an academic in the U.S. And but I wanted to give myself a year to get out gracefully. And in that year, the only work I had to do since I was leaving, the only work I had to do was for my current classes. And the biggest portion of being a faculty member is actually all future-paced work. You know, research to submit to conference uh, conferences, to give presentations, to try and publish to plan future classes, to review textbooks that you might want to use, 
to you know serve on committees for for initiatives that'll come down the road later you know there's all this future work based work and in in knowing i would be gone in a year all of that work disappeared and all i had were my current classes so i had this massive amount of space in my head that i wasn't used to having and i also had a bunch of time i wasn't used to having and i needed something to do with that and wine started filling in that space, I kind of took the seriousness and drive that I'd had in doing my academic research and turned it in towards wine. So I did this very high intensity, thoroughgoing study of wine um, during that time. But I also needed something that wasn't verbal and wasn't intellectual. And so on a lark, I started drawing. And that was this incredible discovery for me because I had this experience that where my mind went quiet and it wasn't that I wasn't thinking, it's that I wasn't thinking in words. And it was incredibly relaxing for me just to draw because of that experience. So I started getting really, really into drawing and um, joked that I was going to draw everything I ever did. And most of what I spent my time doing was wine and so those two things kind of just smashed into each other. And I was like, holy crap, I'm going to draw wine. That's what I'm going to do. And so I started drawing my tasting notes instead of writing them. And a friend of mine that owned a wine shop wine bar saw them. And uh, he, you know, it had never been done before when I did it. And um, so he asked if, he, if we could trade one illustration a week for in exchange for, for a bottle of wine. And he started using it to advertise like his weekly glass pour or some new wine he got in the shop and things like that. And within just a couple of weeks, the, he was posting them online on his um, shop Facebook page. And within honestly, like two weeks they went viral and uh, cause it had never been done before. And it was like, I was getting, you know, feedback from China, from France, from Australia. Um, I, I couldn't even believe it. It was completely shocking. And then within a, a short period of time, it was my, my drawings were mentioned and recommended in the New York times. Um, they had a weekly, what we've been reading sort of recommendation, um, series and they got recommended several times there and then through some other major, um, websites and then by Kermit Lynch wine imports here in the U S and, um, and so it suddenly, uh, I, and I was doing all that under my online name, Hawk Waka Waka, because I still had this professional life as an academic and I wanted anonymity for the drawings just as because they were just for fun anyway. And so I made up this name, Hawk Waka Waka. And so all of a sudden, Hawk Waka Waka had taken off. And I was like totally shocked. I had no idea that would happen. So that was kind of what connected me into the world of wine at first, rather than just me being interested in wine. And then when I left my actual academic career, um, I still had this horrible research and writing habit that needed to go somewhere. And I'd been spending all this time in wine. So I just started also writing about wine just via a blog. And uh, so the blog was this combination of illustrations of the wines I was tasting or how they were made or a region, regional characteristic or, th you know, things like that and combined with then my writing explanations of those things as well. And so I think the drawings kind of captured people's attention because they hadn't been done before. And then the writing made it stick. There was, um, 
because I was writing from that really serious academic, thoroughgoing research perspective. And that's, it turns out, is unusual in wine as well. And so the combination, uh, let's say I started, got started with that kind of stuff at essentially the beginning of 2012. And by May of 13, um, magazines started asking if I'd write from them. So that was sort of what, how it, how it got started. Um, just going back to the, the illustration, can you sort of describe what, like what form were they? How, how can you visualize, um, for the listeners, what, um, what an illustration would look like and, and what was the process? How did you kind of actually transfer the sensory perception of the wine into that illustrated form? Yeah, so initially they were quite literal, um, and I wanted them to be the kind of thing where somebody could like print out the illustration and take it to a shop and find the wine. This is sort of my idea. I was trying to come up with a way to make wine more accessible because I had friends that loved wine but felt like it was in they couldn't talk like they didn't know how to talk about it. And written tasting notes are are just don't make sense to a lot of people and they don't even sound like a real drink half the time because the mix of flavors we claim are all there just sound horrible together half the time, you know? And so, um, I wanted, I wanted something that was more immediate than that. And that was why the drawing made sense because you're with any kind of art piece, if it's visual, you're confronted by it, you see it immediately and there could be layers that continue to unfold, but you're still have an immediate impact from it. And so initially it was just all line drawing with black pen. Um, and, uh, I would draw on one side of the page, I would draw like the literal bottle. And it was important to me that they were hand drawn cause they felt more tangible and intimate, more personal that way. Everything is so perfected these days. Everything's like polished up and, you know, digitized and really smooth. And that, that's not what real life is like. And so I wanted the experience of the hand drawing and I also wanted the imperfections of the hand drawing. So I would do a simple outline drawing of the bottle and making sure to show the key characteristics of the label. So like what the font was like, some key image from the label, things like that. So you could recognize the bottle if you saw it. And then on the other side, I would draw, you know, uh, on the nose and it would be like a strawberry, a cherry, whatever those aromatics were and then on the palette and I would again you know draw um you know like a lemon and then I started over time I started incorporating funny things like a light bulb to show it was bright you know a bright um high acid wine and then or like a leather jacket for some aged red um you know thing so over time the illustrations really evolved and um so now um, they, I tend to do them more, they tend to, be, I do them far less often. I tend to only do them for wines that are really kind of important to me in some way, like that they really move me. And then they're more interpretive. So they still have those kinds of, um, overt elements like the fruit notes and the plant notes and things like that. But they're, but the way those are spaced on the page is meant to imply the shape of the wine and the density and size of the wine. And, um, you know, before initially they always had text. So if I drew a lemon, I'd also write lemon, you know? Um, 
but now that tends to happen less often. So you'll still get like the iconic aspects of the label, you know, like the name, the name of the winery and maybe the key symbol on the label. But then the rest of the, it's done more like a wall piece, like an art piece with color. So it's still black pen outline. And then now usually they're colored um, with colored pencils. So there's still something quite simple and straightforward about the method of the illustration, but they're more interpretive. And um, um, I just, I do them more seriously now before I would, you know, I'd crank out a simple line drawing, you know, at least every, every day. And I would do them for all kinds of wines and, um, I just kind of over time that wasn't going to, you know, I did several, I did hundreds of those and it was just time to move on and, and do it differently. So, uh, there's also, um, you've, you've done some labels for, yeah. for some, um, wine brands. I know, there's, I know there's one in Australia. Is it between five bells? That's right. Yeah. So between five bells, they got started with, uh, um, you know, and at the time they were doing at the time between five bells started, people weren't doing such there's so many different types of creative wine labels now, but really between five bells was at the fore of this. Um, and, uh, they initially started with infographic wine labels and they still have those as well. But then, um, and those are, those are brilliant because they're really beautiful multicolored infographic style that fully wrap the bottle. But if you, when you look, more closely you can interpret the infographics to get all the um, geeky data about the wine so like ph pick dates um varieties that are part of the blend you know what proportions and everything it's all represented visually but then when they started those were all made um with fruit from geelong and so when they started making wine also from heathcote they felt it was an opportunity to do another version of this kind of visual representation of what's actually in the bottle. And so at that point, then they reached out to me and asked if I would illustrate the Heathcote series. That was how that got started. So it was meant to be a visual tasting note on the bottle itself. As far as the writing, um, what form did that take? And, and, you know, where was your stuff being published in the, in the, in the early days? Yeah. So I got started, um, you know, when I started writing for magazines, I got started with Wine and Spirits, which is a national print magazine here in the United, in the United States, and I still actually write for them. I have a large feature on Willamette Valley Chardonnay coming out um, in their October issue, which will be released mid-September. Um, so I'm contributing writer for them. But uh, and then I started one of the things that was when I realized I could start trying to write for magazines. Um, it, did, it kind of took me a while. It didn't occur to me. I just was so serious about traveling around, meeting with producers, really trying to understand what they were doing and doing deep dives in different regions to learn the regions that it somehow didn't occur to me to seek writing for magazines. But once I realized that was an option, I had, I was like, okay, what do I want? And I realized that, oh my God, if I could accomplish anything in my life, the goal would be to write at you know, like one piece someday for World of Fine Wine, and the, it's this total miracle. Within like two months of realizing that was my goal, I actually started writing for World of Fine Wine, and I've had um, 
now a couple of cover features for them and uh, uh, long, you know, several pieces. So that's that's still like really exciting to me that to write for that magazine. I have a lot of admiration for what they do. And then eventually it evolved to I'm one of the ongoing writers for JancisRobinson.com. So I'm her American specialist. That ends up meaning I um, it's about half on California wine, just that's the largest producing state in the U.S., of course. Um, but really also the West Coast. And I make a point of going to at least one unexpected region a year. So I've spent time in Arizona, um, British Columbia, um, you know, just trying to see places that are, you know, developing in North America. What, what what's been the the I guess the the things you've written about the most? Like what I guess inspires you? What stories do you seek out? Um, people, producers. What 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 do you find yourself gravitating towards as far as content to write about? Yeah, I mean, so something that's continued to be true through the whole stretch of my work with wine is like I'm really interested in the you know in the medium and smaller producers, you know, people that are really bootstrapping it and yet making beautiful wine. Like there's still a lot of the iconic producers that we all turn to, like in France or Italy, you know, which are really kind of the formative um, countries for a lot of us, Um, you know, just in terms of if you just think about the evolution of world wine, it all starts in Europe, you know. So anyway, but a lot of the producers we all still talk about, they're still bootstrapping it, but in Europe, you know, and so we assume there's this kind of elevated status there, but a lot of people have quite small cellars and, you know, really their focus is in the vineyard and then um, they're just kind of making it work. And um, again, I've always been fascinated by like, how do people choose what kind of life they want to live? How, you know, how did it evolve that way? How did they get there? And so I, it, there's a funny way in which that early practice I had of asking people how in the heck their life became what it is. It's I still just go around doing that, you know, um, but in relation to wine. So that, yeah, so I tend, I tend to be drawn towards smaller producers. I think, too, part of it is it's, um, it's not that I want imperfect wines, you know, whatever that might mean, but it's that that it's the same kind of thing that I'm seeking in hand drawing rather than computer drawing. I find uh, more often in smaller producers versus very large scale producers, the wines tend to be quite polished. And of course there's something admirable there, but I'm kind of interested in that. Um, that the word authentic is so problematic, but you know, I'm from Alaska. Artisanal. <laughs> You know, yeah, artisanal. You like how does how does you know she she gets real up there? You know, like how do, how are you making it work? How does how do you find beauty in in challenging things? You know, how do you do it hands on? I like seeing the hands on aspect. Um, it's an interesting sort of accident that I've ended up. I one of the, the basically I do three types of of um, work in wine. So the illustration is how I got started. I still do a little bit of that. The writing is kind of the backbone of it, but I, I do a lot more, um, seminars and, and talks on wine. Um, so read, you know, regions will ask if I'll lead a seminar on some topic for them or, uh, big events will know I've spent a lot of time in a region and they'll ask me to design a seminar for that. Um, and so just 
by weird, I honestly I had no idea this would happen, but it's turned out that I've ended up spending a lot of time on Pinot and a lot of time on Chardonnay. And, um, and so, yeah, I've ended up the last couple of years doing a lot on Chardonnay, you know, in the Western United States and kind of seeing the evolution of that. Cause it's, it has come back and I know this is true in Australia too. Like it's come back to a more artisanal approach and a, like more fine tuned style, your know, range of styles now. Um, you know, from this history that really dominated everywhere of huge, giant Chardonnay to then suddenly, in, like, insanely austere Chardonnay, you know, both the U.S. and Australia went through that. And now there's this interesting range in the middle of, you know, a lot of different ways people can make it um, and, and you know, and and still be, like, really you can have pleasure and be mouthwatering, have finesse and deliciousness. Like there's this, like, I, I really love that, this way of getting to explore the different styles and how people are choosing to deliver that and also find it beca- in relation to what their site wants to do, you know? So I tend to be more, that's the other piece of the artisanal thing. I tend to be more drawn to exploring how are people trying to express their site? What does their site demand them to do? And then where does it, shift to what they can choose to do you know what you know kind of where's what's that relationship and how does it show up in the wine um yeah so i've tended to write more about california because i you know apparently live there though i am on the road all the time and then like i said uh, more and more about chardonnay which has been interesting as far as um pinot noir and chardonnay obviously australia and, and new zealand uh you know pretty like prominent in in production of those varieties and how did that kind of that part of the world become a part of your life what's what's the story like you know how what, what's been your perception of uh of strain wine and i guess how it's evolved more recently yeah so i've been curious about australian wine for a long time actually um early on i was some by you know someone I had followers in Australia when I started my blog. I actually I had started it back in 2011, but um, it didn't really get going until 2012. But in 2011, I started emailing with a writer in Australia who he doesn't even live there anymore, and I was really wanting to understand what was going on there and different producers and things. But it was incredibly frustrating that there. It's not that long ago, but there really was very little Australian wine, um, or at least very little range of Australian wine coming into the United States at that point. And oh, definitely, uh, definitely in, in, on the Western side of the States. Yeah. I bet even in New York, it was actually, um, people didn't start returning to their interest in Australian wine until, um, you know, like late thir- 2013. It was kind of starting to burble earlier than that, but it, um, it wasn't really taking off until just the last few years. And, so even, you know, I would be ordering things online and hunting online. It was quite hard to find very much. And then um, in 2012, I started emailing with Between Five Bells. And um, we were trying to figure out how to get the wine to me so I could illustrate it. And finally just settled on, it was easier just to fly me there. So um, I traded um, I traded what would have been my label design fee for a trip 
um, which suited me quite well. That was what I, you know, I wanted to get to Australia and understand what was going on there better. Anyway, so the beginning of 2013, I um, was able to go to Australia and I was able to attend the first rootstock there in, in Sydney, which was a great way to see a lot of artisanal producers from all over Australia. And then I went from, you know, and then I did a kind of the wine bar crawl all through Sydney, which was another great way to see all kinds of little producers and then went and toured around Victoria, uh, for like a week. Um, uh, am I right in guessing that you would have been with former guest of the podcast, Max Allen by any chance? No, you know what? I still have never met him. Really? Um, oh, okay. Yeah. Um, no, he I th- and I, I think, I think another, another guest of Rootstock, Alice, uh, firing actually. Um, she, she did some traveling in Victoria with uh, Max when she came out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. She, Alice was there a couple of years after, um, a couple of years after I, I was there and she, yeah, it's great that she got to travel around with Max. That's such a good way to see things. But no, Mike Benny actually took me around for a couple of days oh, right. and, cool. and the, um, between five bells guys, Ray and also David Fesk, um, helped me set up various visits in other parts of, um, Victoria. And then that it was like, again, it was honestly, there was, um, it was so hard to get things to take off on Australia in the U S that the fact that I was interested when I came back, importers all over the U S that were trying to bring in these little producers, they started contacting me asking if they could send me samples. And I was like, hell yes. <laughs> and so I set up this series of tastings with um, producers and sommeliers in California and would kind of do regional themes. Um, and because uh, that was a way for me to have a, have reason to take these samples and um, and also kind of share them with more people. And then ended up getting asked to to speak on a couple of panels about Australian wine at some events. And it just kept building from there. And, you know, I just got back from Hunter Valley. I just got to do a week there, which was great. What a really interesting, I really got to do a serious deep dive into Hunter Valley Semillon especially. And because we tasted about 80 2017s that um, were just released and about to be released. And then got to do a, quite a few older vintage all the way to even like 12, you know, all the way through to like 12 or 13 year old, uh, maybe 15 years, some 15 year old wines as well. And, um, so it was just, it was really awesome to, you know, I like that kind of thoroughness. I would, I don't like to make claims about something unless I feel like I understand. And honestly, even though I tasted so many Semyons and got to spend a lot of time talking to people that have been making it for quite a while, I still feel like I, it's like I barely glimmer you know, I'm still careful before I make claims about it, but, um, yeah. So I, anyway, I just want to keep going back to Australia. Really. There's so many great things happening there and just such an awesome energy in the wine community. And there's really a, this like fantastic collaborative aspect of the wine community there that it's actually, I mean, I'm speaking broadly. I realize it's a huge country, but, um, it's hard to find that in other parts of the world, to be honest. And it's, um, really refreshing, yeah, I guess, um, you know, very much these days um, we all uh, are so much more closely connected through, you know, uh, digital uh, in terms of social yeah. media and that kind of thing. So, you know, it's amazing that we can follow a sommelier or winemaker's trip into Europe on Instagram and they're visiting these wineries. It's like, oh, I love that winery or I, visit, mm-hmm. I visited that winery, you know, a few years ago. So uh, I guess 
we can kind of it's a lot more easy to see people's influences and and inspirations as well yeah um yeah. and i guess that is the kind of the you know part of the de- democratization of wine you know mm-hmm. previously there were gatekeepers and you know influences and, and they kind of would dictate uh, a lot of stuff but now it's you can just sort of connect with uh, with your own community and i guess it's kind of it's a nice it's a nice part of what changed with wine with you know the creation of blogs and and social yeah. media and, yeah. and I'm, I'm you know you've been a pretty important part of that and and i, I think uh, you know it'd be interesting for people to you know listeners of the podcast to go and and seek out your you know current and previous content to sort of to see to follow your journey yeah thank you i um yeah, I mean, the truth is, I my work on my blog is very, you know, much much slower now because I just I'm so busy. Um, I don't have as much time to write on it, but the content is all still there, you know. And it was for years I wrote five days a week in depth profiles on producers or wine types or regions or you know, and um, I was pumping out work five days a week for three or four years, and that content is all still there. And now you know, when I'm traveling, you know, I'm posting regularly on Instagram. So that's, you know, I'm hawk, waka, waka there. And that's, uh, you know, I just think things have shifted away from blogs to this other sort of communication. And so Instagram is, you know, one of those options I really like, because you can kind of, you can present moments, you know, um, it's about, it is about the image that is you're showing, but you can still kind of give context to it through the text and, and share a moment of, of insight, which I do like. Mm. There's an immediacy to it. Yeah. Yeah. But it, but there's more depth than, you know, Twitter's meant to be short, like incredibly short form. And there's a lot of advantages to using that, but, um, I just, I, Instagram feels right for me, you know. Well, so. I guess in a way, you know, that you thought you would visualize your tasting notes. Instagram, you know, as I said, yeah. that picture t- tells a thousand words. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, I, I really do appreciate you making some time t- some time to chat with me, Elaine. Um, the website is wakawakawinereviews.com and you are hawkwakawaka on social media. Yeah, that's right. W-A-K-A, W-A-K-A, yeah. Uh, and um, hopefully uh, next time you get to come out to Australia, you'll, you might uh, venture down to Melbourne or the uh, surrounding regions and we might be able to catch up in person for the first yes, time I'd since love that, that first meeting in 2012. Yeah, I'd love that. Really nice to catch up with you. Thanks for having me. No, please. Thank you for uh, being on the show and uh, hope to see you soon. Great. Thanks a lot. Take care. And thank you guys for listening to another episode of The Vincast. I have been James Gersbrook, otherwise known as The Intrepid Wino, and you can follow me on social media at Intrepid Wino on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and you can follow the podcast on Twitter at The Vincast. You can subscribe to the podcast on any number of different podcast hosting sharing platforms like iTunes, Player FM, Stitcher, Podbean. Uh, subscribing means you get the newest episode as soon as it becomes available. And it's also a fantastic opportunity for you to provide some feedback to me as the host uh, by leaving a five-star rating and a review. And leaving a review also helps uh, get the podcast to more listeners like yourselves. 
Uh, I'd love for you to visit me on the Intrepid Wino website, which is intrepidwino.com. There's lots of different content there, including writings I've done in the past, tasting notes, uh, and YouTube videos as well. Uh, make sure to subscribe to my YouTube channel, Intrepid Wino, uh, and um, maybe comment some of the, on some of the videos there. But uh, until next time, guys, bye. Bye.